Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today has been on both sides of the table in the fashion industry. Quite an exciting career and very much in the forefront of the sustainability movement of today. Tuna, would you like to introduce yourself? Okay, my name is Tuna Skordal Tobiasson, uh, and I'm a journalist and a writer. Uh, and uh, as you said, I've uh, definitely been on both sides of the table. Uh, I started my career in uh, journalism, working um, uh, mainly in, in fashion um, journalism. Uh, so I was editor for a magazine called Tick for very many years, which was the leading fashion magazine in Norway, if I may say so myself. Um, <laughs> Um, after I quit there, I started working with uh, Oslo Fashion Week uh, and helped them out with their uh, magazine. Uh, and there uh, I started uh, delving into sustainable fashion. Uh, and that actually, it, it's um, a little story about how that came about. Uh, it, it was related to that uh, Paul Wasbotten, who headed Oslo Fashion Week and had started it. He was in an, uh, very interested in the sustainable angle uh, when it came to, to textiles and fashion. Uh, and he wanted Norwegian designers to really take this seriously. So um, uh, we had a little discussion around this and I said, well, you know, Norwegian design, um, isn't that such a small field that it would be fairly easy for them to turn around? Uh, they could uh, probably even handwrite the labels explaining um, uh, how they um, approached sustainability. Uh, and um, uh, so we, we actually started discussing with the other Nordic countries that maybe we should have some sort of cooperation around this. So we started the Nordic Fashion Association. Uh, and I came up with the idea for NICE, which was Nordic Initiative Clean and Ethical. Um, and um, uh, it started out as Norwegian Initiative <laughs> Clean and <laughs> Ethical. Uh, but uh, I had at the back of my head that that um, uh, the N didn't have to be uh, Norwegian. It could actually be Nordic. Uh, so the other countries liked the idea. So we had a cooperation for many years where we um, um, helped start the uh, Copenhagen Fashion Summit. Um, and um, uh, as a result, uh, I think we, we uh, lifted up on the agenda the issues around um, sustainability and textiles and fashion. Uh, but what happened uh, as a result of this was that I started working more and more closely with the Consumption Institute, uh, CIFO, um, at uh, Oslo Metropolitan University. They're at Oslo Metropolitan University now. They didn't used to be. Um, and um, uh, we started uh, cooperating on different projects. So the, uh, one of the first projects that I, I worked on was a project called Valuing Norwegian Wool, uh, which was many, many, many years ago. And it actually resulted in the, in the book, uh, which, is, uh, which was about wool. Um, and um, um, uh, out, uh, one of the outcomes of this uh, project was that we discovered uh, a lot of the shortcomings uh, in uh, a value chain in Norway, which actually fu functioned fairly well uh, because uh, most of the sheep here are actually shared uh, and the wool is scoured uh, and goes, into, uh, goes to the industry. Uh, but uh, a lot of the wool was being exported. It wasn't used in the uh, Norwegian market. Um, some of it was used, uh, um, it was spun at the spinning mills for hand knitting yarns. Uh, and some uh, of the iconic uh, Norwegian sweaters uh, were actually made from uh, the Norwegian wool. But most of the wool ended up in wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, uh, probably mainly in the, um, the British market. Uh, as such, uh, because um, it, it was then exported to China, where it was spun and then sent back to to uh, uh, mills in uh, Europe or other places and ended up in wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. And we wanted to change this. We wanted more of the Norwegian wool clip to actually end up in, in uh, Norway and in more Norwegian products. 
so that we continued uh, and got more funding for uh, another project, uh, which was called Kudus. Uh, and that was not related to cruise ships, which it could have been, of course, because um, many cruise ships do have wall-to-wall carpeting, of course. But um, uh, this was then related to um, the crimp in the Norwegian wool, because the crimp uh, is exceptional in Norwegian wool. Um, So it's very strong, um, very durable wool. Um, And um, uh, so since uh, we've been working on these projects, uh, actually there have started up um, uh, several uh, small mills, uh, spinning mills around Norway. And we have seen an increase in the uptake of wool in um, uh, Norwegian uh, furniture uh, materials in our national costumes, um, also in uh, more uh, yarns, uh, knitting yarns being produced uh, from the Norwegian wool clip. And the latest big news here was that um, um, uh, a yarn that is specifically um, for uh, socks and knitted socks um, has taken out the the nylon of the yarn and and replaced it with uh, uh, the very strong um, wool from our spell sheep, which are the the short tailed um, dual coated sheep that we that are uh, uh, more or less uh, native to the Nordic region. Here, they're the old breeds uh, that were here from Viking times and e- even earlier than that. Uh, and so we've um, actually saved the world for um, uh, or avoided a lot of plastics then in uh, in this yarn uh, because it uh, they sent out I think it was three tons of this yarn into the market and um, so that's a six hundred thousand um, kilos with nylon that has been replaced by um, by actually um, this uh, yarn from the, or the wool from the the old breeds. So uh, we're very, very happy with this and we see a positive uh, development here. Um, But what does worry us a bit um, now is the ongoing um, uh, initiatives in the EU, uh, which um, uh, the EU has decided then that textiles and and, um, clothing and footwear are going to be an area where they are actually uh, going to put in enforce uh, stricter rules. Uh, and also uh, they have an ongoing work with something called the product of an environmental footprint, which isn't just for textiles and, and footwear, it is for all types of products. But when it comes to uh, textiles and clothing, what we see is that uh, the natural fibers are evaluated um, uh, in a negative way so that it is actually the synthetic fibers that end up having a higher or better score in, in the way that these uh, fibers are, uh, are being evaluated and compared to each other. Uh, and it's something that surprises most people because most people will sort of intrinsically uh, think that, oh, natural fibers should be better for the environment than synthetic fibers. Uh, But this has to do with the way uh, that uh, one counts what can be counted and not what actually counts. Uh, And this happens through the so-called life cycle assessments, which uh, are the, uh, the normal way to evaluate uh, fibers and textiles right now. Uh, and that's um, uh, problematic because when it comes to, especially when it comes to the boundaries of where one starts this counting or measuring uh, of the impact of um, these uh, fibers varies uh, very much uh, between the synthetics and the natural fibers. So that, um, for example, for wool, you will start measuring on the farm with the methane um, emissions that the sheep um, have um, during their lifetime when they eat the grass and digest the grass. While when it comes to 
the synthetic fibers, you start measuring when the oil actually comes to the factory where you're producing the, um, the actual fiber itself. But so that means you're not measuring, for example, at the point of extraction, uh, which would be the oil field or the fracking area or wherever. And you're not measuring, for example, the, the transport through the pipelines where they now have found that there is a lot of methane emissions happening um, so that those type of, of uh, emissions aren't counted in to the, um, to the uh, scores uh, or the way that you are evaluating these, um, these fibers up against each other. Uh, and so uh, as a result, uh, especially the, uh, the fibers that derive from, from animals end up having a, a really bad rap uh, or rep in the, this uh, evaluation. So, um, uh, and that this is wor worrying because what we have seen now is that, uh, uh, I don't know if, if uh, people did notice during the COP26, uh, where the volunteers um, had um, uh, uniforms that they were uh, given. I, I think there were a thousand volunteers who they had uniforms that were made from mainly recycled uh, synthetics. Uh, but um, uh, that means that they were actually made from plastic bottles, uh, not from old uh, synthetic clothes, because the, the cheapest and, and easiest uh, available um, recycled uh, polyester is actually from recycled bottles. Um, uh, we had a lot of trouble trying to find out about the, the hats that they were wearing because they were all wearing these knitted hats. Um, uh, and um, the company that had supplied the volunteers with the uniforms refused to tell us what the, the hats were made of. So uh, what we, uh, what happened was that um, Kate Fletcher, who's a, a professor at London College of, of uh, Fashion, she uh, was at COP26, so she asked one of the volunteers to take off the cap and so she could look at the label and see what the product was made from. And it turned out to be 100% acrylic. So um, uh, they didn't use the wonderful Shetland wool that they could have used. They didn't use the, um, the Harris tweed, uh, which of course is part of the Scottish uh, heritage. And they didn't use the kilts or the tartan uh, materials at all. They just used the recycled um, uh, polyester and the acrylic. Um, and, and, and this is typically what we're seeing now. We're seeing more and more um, recycled um, polyester uh, marketed as, as you know, the green alternative. Uh, we saw this latest in, in the H&M uh, Christmas collection uh, where uh, they had both recycled polyester but also biosynthetic uh, materials um, in the collection itself and was hyping this up as the most sustainable alternative and uh, you know the way to celebrate a green christmas in a way um and um what what is a biosynthetic material biosynthetic material is um, um uh, man-made materials that are um uh, mostly like uh, uh, for example nylons um, uh, polyester acrylic but they're made from biological feedstock so that it's not uh, uh, derived from oil. So it's, it's, it's a, it has a natural base in a way, um, even though, of course, oil is also a natural material. You can't, you know, it, it comes from nature in a way, but it's a finite resource. So, so for example, they can use um, uh, uh, corn husks, um, uh, waste materials from other, uh, other uh, biological streams. Uh, sugar cane is a very usual um, feedstock for biosynthetics. And, um, and this is uh, a little bit problematic because um, uh, most of the biosynthetic um, production is controlled by uh, companies who have a patent uh, on, the, um, on the biosynthetic uh, that they're producing. And that will, of course, um, in a way, um, exclude others from 
from producing the same material. Uh, and it, it will in, in many ways also take away um, the livelihood for uh, fiber farmers, uh, uh, you know, poor uh, marginalized fiber farmers in the global south. Uh, because they um, do um, claim to to be a good alternative, for example, to leather, to silk, uh, and materials like that. Uh, and um, uh, that means that the livelihoods of um, silk farmers in um, China, uh, alpaca farmers in Peru, um, uh, poor uh, cotton farmers in many African countries will be more and more uh, often excluded from the market uh, because uh, one is choosing these green alternatives as they are marketed as. So um, uh, what one does forget to, to sort of um, ask in this process is, um, and, and I think that it's the most important question that um, designers and companies need to ask is who stands to gain and who stands to lose when you're making these uh, decisions on what um, textiles or fibers that um, you should choose. Uh, because um, uh, if you look at the tools that we are offered now to, to evaluate these fibers against each other, they don't take that into consideration. What is considered is um, um, water use, um, uh, land use, and, and other different aspects that, that, of course, are important. But what isn't considered is which fibers are biodegradable, for example, so that um, we have the huge problem of, of microfibers and microplastics. Um, uh, what isn't evaluated is if they come from a renewable resource. Uh, we all know that oil is a finite resource. Um, and uh, one is not actually evaluating who it might hurt uh, and what livelihoods could uh, be ruined um, by making these decisions. And here in Norway, we did a um, uh, we wrote an opinion editorial about that our national costumes were being threatened by the EU, which was, of course, um, 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 uh, slightly exaggerating, but uh, not too much, uh, because they are made from wool and uh, they use um, silk and, and cotton. Uh, and um, uh, they, if, if we do get a labeling system, uh, which is based on this product environmental footprint evaluation, um, the national costumes would be labeled as not green. Uh, they would be um, labeled as something that, that was hurting uh, both the environment and, and um, biodiversity, etc., which they absolutely are not participating in. Uh, quite the opposite, because uh, um, national costumes we generally in Norway get uh, when we're around 15, 16 years old, at least the women do, and um, they last a lifetime and the next generation often inherits them. So uh, my daughter has inherited uh, my mom's national costume and um, we can wear them uh, on all sorts of social occasions, including Christmas Eve and um, uh, if you're invited to a um, ball or a, a fancy dinner at the Royal Palace, they are appropriate um, uh, clothes to wear there so that you have all sorts of settings that you can wear the national costume in, in including christenings and weddings and um, those type of occasions. So it is a very sustainable piece of clothing because you wear it a lot and it gets a lots of, a lots of use. Uh, and it's high quality, very expensive, um, because they're mainly hand embroidered and um, uh, tailors uh, have to generally sew them. So, um, uh, but uh, if the um, rules, uh, the people who rule in the EU decide that synthetics are supposed to be the most um, sustainable, then um, maybe we'd have to change all our national costumes into synthetic national costumes, <laughs> which would be pretty, uh, pretty terrible. 
I can only imagine the level of static electricity on the Norwegian National Day when all these synthetic national costumes are rubbing against each other. Yes. Their hair, hair on end. <laughs> but that was also interesting because I was I walked past a, um, a clothing store the other day with some girlfriends who were out um, walking and, and there was a coat hanging in the doorway, uh, which was on sale. Uh, and um, I sort of asked out loud, I wonder what material that coat is made from. Uh, and I, I, I touched it, and it, it had this sort of brittle feel, feeling to it. Uh, and the, the shopkeeper ran out and said, well, it, it, it's, it's mainly wool. It's mainly wool. And I said, well, what's, what's the other part then that isn't wool? Uh, and so she, she wasn't sure herself, so she, you know, uh, brought up the label, and um, oh, lo and behold, it was fifty um, percent uh, polyester and fifty percent wool. Uh, and um, she insisted, "Oh, that's such a good mix for um, uh, for a coat." And I said, "No, it isn't. It's a pretty lousy mix for a coat." Uh, and she was like, "Oh, then you don't know what you're talking about." And I said, "Well, in fact, I do." <laughs> away but it had this very sort of electric brittle feeling to it and it it just wasn't a nice material at all now you ran through pretty much all the points i wanted to ask you about <laughs> in your startup here now and i've got a few notes mm. so i'm going to sort of start rolling back but you mentioning this coat and the label on it declaring the content mm. is one point i'd like to ask you about because there's a lot of talk about looking at the labels, seeing what they're made of, but can we actually trust these labels? Well, um, when it comes to what they they do say, it, it's mostly the uh, the content of the the uh, material itself. It's not actually what's what's in the clothes because the sewing thread isn't included in in the label. Um, buttons and zippers and, and other embellishments, uh, of course, are not included. And when they have done tests of, of uh, you know, seeing if the, the actual label reflects what's in the material, they have found that there's a lot of uh, mislabeling. Uh, so that, uh, to answer your question, no, um, you can't trust the label uh, 100%. Um, also, there's of course all the dyeing and finishing uh, of the the textiles, which is not included in the label because you you don't have to. Uh, you're only asked to label on on the fiber content um, and have washing instructions. Um, some countries make you uh, include the the country of origin, but that will be the last uh, last place where. Uh, uh, there was some sort of production associated with the product. So, for example, made in Italy can be just the button sewn off on the product at the last, you know, as the very last stage. And it, you can actually, with uh, the law in hand, say that it's made in Italy. Hmm. So I, I suspect that if the label looks bad, and a lot of these labels do look pretty bad, then you know it is bad. Mm -hmm. But if the label looks good, it might not be as good as they're trying to make out. <laughs> oh, do you have to be so suspicious of everyone? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, you know, it's it's and and I think that people, in a way, have they have trusted uh, to a too large extent you know, the companies to to tell them the truth about uh, what we are clothing ourselves with, um, and of course uh, some of the. The dyeing and finishing processes are pretty heavy on the chemicals uh, and toxic chemicals even. Um, of course, water is even a chemical, so um, um, chemistry is always involved uh, in some way. But, um, but uh, uh, you know, uh, this is part of the, the problem here, that, that um, people just know too little about uh, how clothes are made. Uh, and if one does visit, for example, a, a uh, spinning mill or something um, where they dye uh, and you can see them, the, all the processes that the, the wool has to go through to become yarn, then your eyes start opening up and you start thinking, oops, you know, here's, there's a lot going on here. And, um, and there are a lot of 
processes that the clothes have to go through uh, before they end up in the in the store. They don't just magically appear in the store uh, without having going through, uh, you know, first becoming yarns and then being either woven or knitted and then uh, cut and sew. Uh, and there are endless amounts of processes that that take us from the fiber and all the way to the clothing. So so having this enormous focus on the fiber that the EU is, uh, is doing now is in a way sort of putting the focus in the wrong place. Because if one says that 50, only 15% of the carbon um, footprint of a product comes from the fiber itself as a sort of global average, which is always... a uh, not the best thing to use, but as a global average, then uh, the the other processes will be maybe 35 um, or even more percent of the footprint. So we should probably be looking much more at, at the other processes and not so much at the fiber. Now, you mentioned all the chemicals, and that makes me wonder, if you go out and buy a new, very colorful shirt, say, do you wash it before you wear it? You should. You should. Do you think? Do you think many people do? No. <laughs> I can't imagine so. But <laughs> once, once you start thinking all the chemicals, where it's been, the factories, mm. and you think, oh, you really probably don't want to wear it without washing it. Uh, I, I know that for at least next to skin clothing, like underwear and uh, bedding and things like that, you should always wash it before you start using it. Always. A coat mm. might not be that important to, to wash ahead of time because it's, you know, you'll have several layers between you and, and the coat. But anything that, that is on your skin um, uh, and touches your skin, you should launder it before you start wearing it. Some solid information there. Mm. Now, it must be a good few years since you were the editor of a fashion magazine, around 30 years ago? Um, well, 20-some, yeah. Okay, yeah. we'll go with that. <laughs> um, I think the Norwegian fashion industry, at least, and probably the whole world, was a pretty different place then. But you suggested that the Norwegian fashion industry were getting into sustainability pretty early on because it's suddenly the last few years really become a big thing everywhere else. Now, I'm not saying Norwegians are especially good in that respect because Norwegians generally aren't good in anything <laughs> that they like to think of themselves as that. But it would appear that, well, it was Guru Holland Brundtland that sort of came up with the whole sustainability definition way back back when the definition was easy mm. and simple, not like the Wikipedia page today where you can't mm. even work out what it's about. <laughs> um, where was I going with this? Well, maybe the timeline. Yep. Oh. Well, I think, um, uh, let's see. Um, about 15 years ago was when I started working with the, um, the Oslo Fashion Week. Uh, and we started working with the, um, uh, and then everything was like, what? We have a environmental footprint. <laughs> uh, so it's been a it's been a steep learning curve for me, uh, and the ones who are you know starting to look at it now certainly have a very steep learning curve, um, because un really understanding what this is about it, it's it's very complex. But I, I think we really need to, to embrace the complexity in a way, uh, which isn't easy because, um, you know, the, everybody wants the sort of easy answer. Well, what is the most sustainable fiber then? <laughs> but uh, that, that question doesn't really have an answer. Uh, I think we might have had more of a chance when there was still production in Norway back when there were there was spinning and weaving and they made clothes and they made things. It, there was a, a shorter way to the market. It was more mm. contained. Nowadays, Norwegian brands are all designed in Norway. Uh, well, made somewhere we, we else do, from we do fabrics. actually have some production here. We actually do. Um, uh, uh, small scale, um, yeah. uh, except for the knitting yarn um, production which um, uh, has a very, very big factory outside of Stavanger. 
and um, uh, and that um, so we have weaving mills. Uh, we have um, at least three weaving mills, um, uh, and I think most most uh, politicians in Norway are surprised. Oh, there's still textile production going on in Norway. Hmm. Uh, didn't we export all of that to the Far East um, years ago? Mm. Um, but and we also have knitting uh, uh, factories actually, um, and um, uh, it's um, there. There's actually one small operation that's going to be starting up uh, just around the corner now in next year, uh, and so uh, we do see sort of a turnaround now that that um, bringing production back, the, what they call onshoring or reshoring. Um, uh, often is is both interesting in the EU, but uh, also in Norway. So um, uh, yeah, so uh, I think that is one of the aspects where where you can actually see some actual change um, uh, around this, uh, it, because once you do get the production closer and you actually see, um, you know, all the the uh, different. Um, um, stages that that you have to go through uh, to actually make the clothes, then uh, uh, then you also become more aware of of uh, uh, what type of problems you are causing, and and how to deal with them. So I think this is one of the the things that that will uh, probably in a way change the industry. And having factories and production facilities nearby also means we can gain more insight and more control over what they're doing which we don't have when they're on the other side of the world yeah and, and uh, accessible yeah and i think also that uh, this this has an impact because then you you don't need to forecast you know half a year ahead of time uh how many uh pink dresses you're going to sell for christmas uh this year you can actually um produce more on demand and then you don't won't have this this horrible overproduction that you have today which is yet another aspect of the cheery subject mm. of sustainability mm. now there's a new initiative which has come to norway but from somewhere else uh, the fiber shed idea yeah this is um, um uh, originates in uh, from california uh, and it's um, a woman whose name is Rebecca Burgess uh, who started it. Uh, and it um, goes to producing clothes in the region uh, based on the type of fibers and um, that you have available in the region uh, where you live. Um, and in California, she started with actually with wool and with cotton, local cotton. Um, and found that uh, they had uh, lots of wool that wasn't being uh, used at all. Um, and um, also uh, she found uh, cotton that uh, with natural colors um, that uh, you didn't really have to dye. Uh, and so uh, um, the main problem in California was, was uh, operationalizing more uh, um, of the value chain. Uh, because um, they didn't have factories or uh, small-scale spinning mills or anything uh, there. Uh, so that was the main problem, was, was getting that going. Uh, here in, in Norway, we now have somebody who started up um, fiber shed um, uh, in the northern part of Norway. Uh, there's this fiber shed uh, that just started up in Finland. Um, there's one started up in uh, Netherlands. Um, there are at least two in the UK. Uh, so this is spreading. Uh, we have some interested parties in Denmark and uh, also in Sweden. So um, uh, it's it's small scale, local, uh, and works very closely with the community. Um, so that's a very important aspect of this: is um, uh, being part of the community and and um, making sure that um, you have all the processes uh, within the what one could call a fiber shed in the same way that you have a watershed or uh, something like that. So, so that's why the, they call it a fiber shed, even though most people don't understand the, the connection here. But it is this, this very local, um, uh, working with the local farmers, working with the local um, 
production, etc. And then uh, uh, knowing who actually made the clothes. And so that would that would actually take you full cycle from sheep to sweater, mm. very locally. Yeah, that is a lovely idea. Yeah, and uh, there, you know, people will say this can't be scaled. This is is you know, um, it's too small. But but that's part of the the uh, the idea behind it is that it shouldn't scale. It shouldn't be huge. Uh, it should be um, something that that um, it relates to the community. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. Now, I think you mentioned that um, a lot of the Norwegian wool goes to China for scouring and then back to Norway. Now, I have understood that scouring... No, it actually gets scoured in the UK for the main part. In the UK, so what what does it happen in China? Uh, that they spin it there for um, um, for the uh, carpets, production okay. of the carpets. It's it's kind of crazy. It's like the fish being fished in the north of Norway that goes to China to be made into fish sticks, mm. which we then import back to Norway. Whereas you could have done it locally. Yeah. But I have understood also that I've always thought of wool as the definitely the most sustainable of fibres until someone explained to me about the scouring process where all the dirt and grease and shit and everything else is washed out of the wool. But um, that depends on how you do the scouring. You can do scouring um, in a very environmentally friendly way by closing the loop and make sure, making sure that the all the wastewater is taken care of in a, in a good way. Um, and uh, the scouring mill that the Norwegian wool actually gets scoured at in Haworth scouring in um, Bradford has uh, very high eco credentials, uh, and so the the um, um, Norwegian wool, when it's scoured, actually has the Nordic Swan label um, on it because they every, every they tested all the effluents and everything there so that they know that uh, the water that comes out of the factories is clean. But, but if you scour, uh, you know, in the Far East, um, you know, you really don't know what's happening there. Now, given that scouring has become more environmentally friendly, and of course, leather tanning has also been improved a lot on, do you think a lot of these, or quite a few of these processes within fibres and making could be improved it's just a case of someone saying hang on this isn't very good can we improve it yes and and i think uh, you know they they do have the technology to do it in the right way the problem was just that you know when one started um uh, having these very strict rules about um uh, what could um, uh, be emitted from the factories here in in uh, europe that's when one moved all the processes to the far east and uh, or to the global south uh, to places where they didn't have those strict rules uh, to to avoid both the costs and and um, and thinking that if it's out of sight then it's not our problem anymore, but of course it it comes back and bites you again because <laughs> those problems aren't local they they travel all around the world and um, uh, as as problems that we know we've seen that now with the microfibers and. Uh, and microplastics that uh, they show up on our shores and in our um, fish as well. So, um, but but here, you know, the um, uh, the very very strict uh, rules in the EU and in uh, in Europe uh, means that if if you're going to actually produce here, it's going to be more expensive, and you have to pay that price. You also mentioned. Uh that there was a specific type of Norwegian sheep. Yeah, the spelt sheep. Which I, which I actually had for dinner just yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Um, that could actually replace the nylon or the elastic in socks. This is just such a brilliant idea because I keep saying that socks are the only garment where I will accept some synthetics, mm. really, if I'm buying new, because otherwise they just don't last. Mm. 
So could this be a renaissance for the Spalso? It could be. Uh, then we'll have to have a lot more of them and you're going to have to eat it for dinner more often. <laughs> that would be a pleasure, yeah. <laughs> but I do know that various sheep have various applications for their wool. Um, I was on, uh, the, on the Hebrides uh, a few years ago visiting the Harris Tweed Mills mm. and I was looking at the black-faced sheep they have there and I was asking, well, are these used for Harris Tweed? And, oh, no, no, I mean... One, there wasn't enough of them, and the second was that their wool was completely uh, unsuitable for Harris Tweed because all that wool went to the mainland for use in carpets, mm. and they were importing wool from Scotland to make tweed from. How does that work for the sort of sheep mix that we see around? Well, you know, most of the, the sheep that we have in Europe now are uh, in the food production um, so that um, it's either for meat uh, or for uh, some countries it's uh, for producing cheese. Uh, and so the, the emphasis on wool has, has just, you know, become less and less and less. Uh, and uh, in Norway, they almost took away um, wool uh, fineness as as um, uh, one of the parameters when when you're de deciding which rams to choose for for um, um, the next generation to create the, <laughs> to make the next generation. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the last minute, they decided to leave it in, um, and so um, uh, and, and that's because they actually see if you do concentrate and and also. Uh, look at the wool uh, it is a very inherited trait from uh, sheep to sheep so that um, you can actually improve the the fineness uh, of the fibers it uh, doesn't have to end up being uh, so coarse that uh, it's only fit for uh, for carpets for example uh, and maybe not even that but uh, what we're seeing now is also that that one needs to also look at what other types of products can you use the wool for, uh, the coarser wool, or as they call it in New Zealand, strong wool. Um, uh, and uh, we're now seeing a lot of um, new product ideas coming up uh, that are very interesting. Um, you know, would you like to, for example, be buried in a wool coffin or... A <laughs> That's an alternative. I'd be buried in tweed, but everyone <laughs> knows that. <laughs> uh, there are also envelope linings in wool, but these are mainly non-woven. Um, and that means that you can use coarser wool because it, um, when it's not spun, it, um, it, it can be coarser and still feel soft. So uh, there are lots of new product um, ideas um, that um, are, are developing. And, and the Consumption Institute, CIFO at the Oslo Metropolitan University will be coming out with a report very shortly that uh, goes through um, many of these new, new uh, product ideas for wool that is maybe not fit uh, for clothing. Uh, but of course, now we have wool shoes. We have all sorts of uh, new products that that um, are using. Um, also, you know, the fact that that wool doesn't really um, uh, um, attach or smell isn't attached so um, so much to the wool, so that you can just air out your shoes and they'll smell like roses again. <laughs> this does bode well for farmers that are finding that their wool isn't worth anything mm. so it's not worth selling and they're just uh, digging well burying it or getting rid of it mm. yeah and that's that, that's what we uh, we we tried to uh, look uh, through the uh, the european market and find out how much of the wool was actually wasted which is very very hard to find out because um uh, you know the farmers don't report uh, um that they are actually, you know, digging down or throwing the wool into the sea or burning it or whatever they're doing with it, um, because the the price is so low that that even wrapping it up and sending it to the to a wool station is too expensive for them. Um, but we have some figures from Poland, from uh, Estonia, uh, from Finland, 
Uh, and there we've seen numbers up to maybe 80%, uh, even more of the wool being actually thrown, uh, thrown out or wasted. Um, but, you know, it's hard to extrapolate that to the whole European market and say, and especially since both in the UK and Norway and Iceland, uh, we do have a value chain for the wool with wool stations, uh, etc. But if you're looking then at, you're saying the EU, now that you have Brexit so that the UK isn't in the EU anymore, then uh, we could say maybe 70 to 80% of the, the wool in the EU is actually waste. What, what is the big uh, unknown is, is Spain, uh, and they do have a lot of merino sheep, uh, but um, it's very, very hard to get numbers from Spain. But if the EU without Spain is still at 70 80%, that's, that's still tragic. Yeah. That is a massive natural resource just being wasted. Yeah. I do wonder, a lot of the applications you mentioned for wool, they seem to dovetail a bit with applications for waste clothing as well the sort of unrecyclable clothing that is used for insulation mm. mats and this and that. Do we have a massive surplus of <laughs> fibers for that type of product? Um, well, you know, for example, if, if one did develop more, more tweeds um, using some of these um, uh, old wool clothes um, would be great to, to be able to recycle them into to a, a tweed mix. Um, uh, I know that some some uh, uh, want to look closer at that, but uh, and earlier, of course, you had these um, these shoddy um, uh, factories that took the the old clothes and and uh, produced everything from from emergency blankets to, to send to to uh, you know places where you had um, wars or, uh, you know, big problems ongoing that you needed these warm blankets uh, uh, for people. Um, most of these shoddy factories in in, uh, in Europe, except for in Italy, have been closed down. Um, and um, I know now there's a, uh, there's a, a new startup in, in the Far East that is uh, trying to uh, use the wool clothing uh, and, you know, uh, for recycling purposes, uh, and he, um, the guy who started that, is just drowning in <laughs> in uh, expensive wool sweaters from all over the world. Oh, yes, I mean, there's absolutely no shortage of unwanted clothing. That is, uh, yeah, terrible. Uh, I did want to ask you. You mentioned the PEF standard. Yeah. Now, I've also heard of the Higgs standard, which seems to be quite aligned, but the Higgs standard comes from basically the fast fashion industry and says the same thing, basically, buy our synthetic stuff because it's great, don't buy the wool. But the, other, the PEF comes from the EU. Is there some sort of connection here? Well, um, there there is some sort of connection, uh, and... Um, um, I think part of the problem here is that the um, the Higg index comes uh, originally from the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. Uh, they're the ones who put it together, and so it's not just fast fashion; it's it's also the sporting uh, industry. So, uh, in the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, you do have the all the major brands more or less um, collected there, and they've been working on the Higg index for years. Uh, and they've um, developed what is called the, the HIG index MSI, which is the material science index, which is the, the measuring of the, the fibers. They have other uh, tools in the, the HIG that, that measure other things, but the MSI uh, is where uh, uh, we have seen this, that, that wool is, is measured uh, as not sustainable while recycled polyester is the most sustainable. Um, it's actually silk, alpaca, and cow leather that come out um, the worst in the Higg index right now, the MSI. Um, but um, uh, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, together with the Global Fashion Agenda, together with um, the European Sporting Goods um, Organization, uh, together with Textile Exchange, have started something called the Policy Hub. And they have a very strong position in the technical group 
uh, the working group that is developing the product environmental footprint for um, the EU when it comes to clothing and um, shoes or footwear. So this is where you can see the connection here because the people who are sitting in the technical committee who have the voting rights in the technical committee are for the most part the, um, the global fashion, fast fashion and sporting industry. Um, and uh, cotton also has a place at that table. Wool has a place at that table, but, but the natural fibers are in, very much in a minority. So that uh, when they protest uh, uh, on different things, uh, they don't necessarily get hurt. Um, but uh, when it, uh, the, the PEF does have a lot more um, parameters that they measure on than the HIG does. Uh, the HIG has four or five parameters while the PEF has 16, I think it is. I don't, I'm not quite sure, but I think it's around 15, 16. If, if one goes in uh, to the website of, of makethelabelcount.org, uh, uh, one can read more about you know, the, the uh, problems around um, the different parameters, um, uh, because here they, they've explained really well um, how uh, these things get measured and what doesn't get measured. Um, but still, you know, there's still the problem around this with micro uh, synthetics, microplastics, microfibers. There's not biodiversity is not included. Um, the renewability or uh, renewable resources is not it doesn't count, and also the the biodegradability doesn't count. So that um, uh, those things that are super important, which should be what counts the most, aren't included and not for example, the use phase for, um, for clothing, which will make a huge difference because if you use something once, as opposed to using it 50 times, you're you know, spreading out the, the environmental footprint over 50 uses instead of just one. So um, uh, making the lifetime of, and the use time of clothing um, it put, putting that into the, the evaluation of um, the clothing is, is important. And that's one of the things they're trying to push the EU on now to include in a better way than they've, um, they've decided so far, because so far they've decided, uh, or that's what we hear from the technical committee, that it would be on, on fiber strength. And again, the synthetics would win. So what I'm really hearing now is that this is one of the rare cases where we can actually confirm a conspiracy theory check. <laughs> uh, yes, in a way, I think. Kind so. of, yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any thoughts on vegan leather? Um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there was just a news story in, um, in Norwegian media today about um, um, vegans who were um, um, – uh, complaining that they couldn't wear wool in minus 30 degrees in the northernmost uh, Finnmark region in Norway, uh, because then they wouldn't be uh, good good vegans. Um, <laughs> but the, the yeah, person... Eye-rolling here. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the person who was interviewed said that, you know, she uh, had decided to knit something from the sheep on the farm where she was living because she saw that those sheep were happy sheep. So... <laughs> So she asked for an exception because those sheep were happy sheep. <laughs> but but um, uh, now um, vegan leather is mainly biosynthetic. Uh, bio um, and uh, for me, polyurethane, that's, uh, plastic. I mean, we uh, what is happening now, what they're seeing in, in the leather industry is that more and more hides are becoming waste because um, leather the um, the ask for leather is, has gone down because of this uh, this uh, misconstrued focus on vegan leather. So um, they are now burning uh, and throwing out hides and you know sending them to to uh, garbage um, uh, yeah, collection. That's, so misuse of resources tragic. again. I, I previously had uh, a guy from Billy Tannery in the UK as a guest. Mm. Uh, they get goat leather mm. 
which is basically either thrown away or it arrives and gets tanned there because the goat is really only used for the milk mm. and that's only the female goats mm. so yeah a terrible oh, it's, misuse it's the, the whole industrialization of, of um, farming industry everything is uh, at the core of the problem so and now we're trying to develop sort of mushroom based yeah. leather to replace leather so that we can throw away the actually perfectly good leather mm. <laughs> that we already have yeah it's so madness. explain why that's you know a good thing no <laughs> mm. i did want to ask you um in connection with the the super sustainable norwegian fashion brands why are they so keen on using mixed fiber fabrics as so i'll go and see they have lovely stuff that mm. looks like wool and it's full of polyester and acrylics and whatever yeah and it's um it's a question of price well, well they're expensive that. enough yeah. Yeah, they're expensive enough, but um, it's it's um, it, when uh, wool increased a lot in price about uh, I think it was about three years ago, uh, and that's when they started um, adding more uh, mixes uh, into uh, the materials, even the brands that that were uh, very uh, wool oriented. Um, I think my mind is exploding here. You said the wool increased dramatically in price, but still the farmers aren't able to sell it for uh, well, decent money. Uh, this was the merino wool. Oh, the one uh, from the, New Zealand. From, yeah, New Zealand, Australia, and um, uh, South uh, America and South uh, yeah. Africa. So the the strong wool um, has been struggling with price for a long, long time. But um, the merino prices increased uh, about three years ago, and um, and that's when they started. Because uh, for the most part, when when uh, for clothing, uh, even though it's not necessarily next to skin, a merino has become sort of the go-to wool, um, where you could actually use uh, other types of wool. And and I, this needs to be part of yeah, the change that we're going to see in the future. That that when it takes a harder look at what type of wool one is using in, in the different types of uh, apparel and, and other products that you don't automatically go to the Merino uh, for everything. The, the Norwegian brand's clothing that I had in mind was mainly jackets, coats, mm. trousers, the sort of stuff that you could have easily used, say, Harris Tweed for or Donegal Tweed. or mm. And it's weird because been very into tweed for a long time now and buy lots and mm. it's not that expensive mm. but are they so cost driven that they'll go even cheaper and get the sort of synthetic based mixed stuff just to save that because the products they're making they must be making a good margin on them um I don't know enough about the the different margins from the companies but uh, I do know that that um, with with the sort of greenwashing that we're seeing now with with the recycled polyester and the and the synthetics, um, it it fits uh, perfectly into the sort of logic that oh let's mix in some more uh, synthetics uh, in the material and call, call say that that's a good thing. For example, the poly cottons that you see now rampant everywhere. Uh, in sports uh, clothing, etc., polycotton is is the worst idea ever. But it's um, it just pills and it's it's horrid. But uh, it's it's becoming the, sort of the fabric of of choice. Right. The most ridiculous use of recycled bottles I heard about was a brand that were making they're making some garment out of recycled bottles, but they couldn't find enough or good enough yeah. ones. So they were buying new bottles yeah. and recycling. Mm. Now, polyester fleeces are totally fashion now, and even Patagonia makes them. I have previously described Patagonia as the smuggest brand on earth. <laughs> um, but they, they're using recycled polyester. Now, couldn't they have used wool instead? Of course they could, but um, um, uh, and you know they 
for example, if, if you're looking at a fleece jacket, which would, you know, be a typical Patagonia uh, item, wool fleece is wonderful, but it's expensive. But I see there's a couple of small Norwegian brands now making actual wool fleece, mm. and they're, they're actually no different in price than Patagonia charges for their polyester. Well, then somebody uh, has like a very good margin then. Yeah, well, I imagine the Norwegian brands are, are making a living as well. Someone has a super massive margin. Uh, but people still buy this stuff. I mean, how, how can we stop people buying all this rubbish? <laughs> uh, good question. Um, the best thing would be to have the company stop making them because then they wouldn't mm. be in the marketplace. So um, uh, maybe, maybe we should have a fiber diet for people. You're only allowed so and so much of when it comes to synthetics. Uh, you can you can buy as much uh, uh, wool as you your heart to your heart's content, but when it comes to synthetics, that's the limit. <laughs> Time to invest in tweed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I see we've been talking for an hour now. Um, is there anything you'd like to mention that I haven't thought to mention? You were onto the greenwashing thing, which I would have liked <laughs> you to say a bit more about. No, I, I just think that you know people should um, think uh, long and hard about uh, why uh, we, up until the 1980s, uh, had um, you know fairly good clothes and mainly natural fibers, and then after the 1980s, things just went haywire on the synthetic side. So they have a very, very steep increase in, in consumption and production. And it's only based on the synthetics because the natural fibers, they've stayed level, 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 level. So um, the uh, problem we're facing now, the conundrum that we're sort of stuck in, is a synthetic problem. Do you think that was a fashion thing or was it a price thing? Or was it just that we wanted so much more stuff? It was a perfect marketing storm in a way. Um, and this whole idea about, you know, growth, that you have to have growth. If you don't have growth, then uh, you're stagnant and then you're going to go bankrupt eventually. Uh, so it's it's part of our economic system. Um, but uh, that really needs to turn around now because it's killing the planet and it's going to kill us too, unless we turn it around. Can we blame the marketing for a lot of the problems we have today? I think we can blame the marketing departments for most of the problems that we have today. So when I talk to people and they say, oh, no, I, I failed again today, I bought something. And I think, well, it wasn't really down to you because the marketing forces are really, really strong. Mm. And really, it's a victory when we don't buy anything with all the advertising and the science behind the persuasive advertising. Mm. I mean, how can you possibly resist? No, uh, you have to, uh, putting it to the consumer to be the one who has to resist is quite unfair. It, it shouldn't be on the consumer. So is legislation, Molotov cocktails, public shaming, uh, what would help? I don't public shaming. I, I don't believe in that, but uh, legislation, yes. And Molotov cocktails. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I, I see that. I, I mean, the big companies really have very little motiv motivation to change their ways, mm. unless it means that they're not making sales, and their marketing departments are so active that they are still making sales. So, why not just pretend that we're doing better and keep going? Mm. Definitely, and I think that um, um, you know most most designers and most uh, who are actually you know making the products do want people to like their stuff and to keep them as long as possible uh, and use them a lot. But uh, then the marketing guy comes in and says, hey, "You should do a little tweak here so that you know it becomes planned obsolescence that it's not in next fall." And use some cheaper fabric, cheaper buttons, cheaper making, yeah. more money. Mm. Okay. Anything you'd like to mention right at the end? Um, 
No, that we hard at work now with an academic book that's going to come out next year uh, on um, local, slow, and sustainable fashion. For, um, so, um, wool as a fabric for change, which is going to be out uh, in February. So, uh, hopefully, um, that will gain some interest in the academia anyway. <laughs> it sounds right at my alley, at yeah. least. <laughs> Okay, Tuna. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. And uh, bye-bye. Bye. And that was all for this week's episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, if you're interested in checking out some of the links Tuna mentioned, you can find them in the show notes. That's quite a few. If you'd like to uh, get in touch with me, email address is welldressedad at gmail.com. You can check out the blog at welldressedad.com and you can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. If you'd like to support the podcast or just show the appreciation, you can buy me a coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com and select Gomology or find the link in the show notes. Until next week, bye-bye.